let me tell you about the legend of George P. Burdell. In the late 1920s, Burdell was enrolled at Georgia Tech in Atlanta, and he would earn a Bachelor of Science degree in 1930. A few years later, he would go on to gain a master's degree as well, being listed on the school's list of alumni, even though at the same time he was still an active student. And Burdell would fight in World War II, with his name popping up in the records of the 8th Air Force out of England, flying 12 missions over Europe. After the war, he would come back to the U.S. and would even get married to Ramona Cartwright in 1958. Over the years, he would go on to join the board of Mad Magazine, would be on the staff for the Georgia Tech radio station WREK, and was even in the running for the Time Magazine Person of the Year in 2001. But here's the thing. George P. Burdell never existed. To quote Andy Dufresne, he's a phantom, an apparition, second cousin to Harvey the Rabbit. He had been created by Georgia Tech student Ed Smith in 1927 when he had accidentally received two enrollment forms. And for years, Ed and a small gang of friends would turn in two sets of homework and take all of Burdell's tests just to keep their little joke going. And soon their fake person had earned two degrees and was a campus legend. Burdell's name was added to that roster for all those air missions in World War II by a Georgia Tech alumnus, and it was only removed when another Georgia Tech alumnus became the operations officer and recognized the name Burdell. And Burdell's even been enrolled at Georgia Tech several times over the decades, and if you visit the campus now, you'll find a store named Burdell's. But here's the greater point to all of this. George P. Burdell was a joke, a harmless prank pulled by some college students in the 1920s. When he was found out, he was found out, and the thing was recognized as the great practical joke that it was. Now, compare the fate of Burdell, college graduate, war hero, husband, and successful businessman, with those of the fake characters created by James Addison Rivas for his Peralta Grand Scheme, they are all doomed to obscurity, the subject for quirky history podcasts and short entries into history books. And when they were found verifiably to be all fake, the only people laughing were the men who were taking on the would-be baron in court. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 140, The Baron of Arizona, Part 6, The Scheme Unravels. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, Rivas arrived back in the United States, fresh off an invigorating trip to Europe. He instantly got to work with Act 2 of his land scheme, roping in some of the most prominent political and business leaders of the day to invest in his Peralta Grant. But that kind of hit the skids in 1889 when Royal A. Johnson, the recently reappointed Surveyor General for the Territory of Arizona, dropped his bombshell report that labeled the entire grant a fraud. And after the U.S. Land Office rejected his claim, partially because of Johnson's report and partially because it didn't want to hear about it anymore, 
Revis decided to use the nuclear option, suing the United States government. Author E.H. Cookridge makes the point that Revis deciding to take the matter to court might not have been the best decision. Sure, Johnson's report had been a big blow to the grant's legitimacy, but that didn't really matter anymore. Revis could have just kept claiming he owned those 12 million acres and that the government was going to approve his claim any day now, which, you know, he'd been doing for years, and lured more and more suckers into advancing him money for his non-existent development plans and paper-thin companies. If he hadn't chosen to sue, it's possible that justice may never have caught up with him, either because his schemes kept evolving and moving, or because he was able to make a getaway with a lot of other people's cash before someone could put a collar on him. But the irony is that he was forced to sue because of the sheer enthusiasm of his supporters, many of whom happened to be prominent attorneys such as Robert Green Ingersoll. Ingersoll was so convinced that the grant was legitimate and that Revis was being cheated out of his property by the mean old government that he would not let his client, nay, his friend, take any other option than fighting for what was rightfully his. And so, Revis went to court. But let's talk about this court for just a second, because he wasn't going through the regular criminal justice system. He started out in the Court of Claims, where anyone with a legal beef against the U.S. government went with their cause. However, in March 1891, so roughly a year and a half after Johnson's report dropped and a year after Revis was notified that his claim was being denied, Congress finally got off its duff and did something about all these land claims in the Southwest. They set up the Court of Private Land Claims, which was to exclusively deal with any claims in the U.S. that originated from Spanish, Mexican, or French land grants. It consisted of five judges empowered to investigate into and rule on the many, many, many cases that had built up in the past half a century. Now, people in Arizona hated the idea of this court. Absolutely hated it. They thought it was just another tool for land grabbers to come in, swear that they had some inheritance or old piece of paper, and then they would take the land out from under the people who'd been working it for decades. I mentioned last week that Congressional Delegate Marcus Aurelius Smith thought it would disempower the common man while giving people like Revis an opening to push forward a crooked claim. He even name-checked Revis and the Peralta Grant in his campaign speeches railing against this very court. And when Congress passed the law setting it up, it was over Smith's very strenuous objections. I'm not 100% sure on this, but it appears that after the Court of Private Land Claims was instituted, Revis now had suits in both it and the previous Court of Claims. However, Revis's attorneys asked for a continuance that they might be able to drum up new evidence to support his claim, so it wasn't until February 1893 that he filed this new suit. And Revis put that span of nearly two years to good use, traveling widely and preparing his best to show that all the documents that he had handed in were 100% legit. Johnson's adverse report was something of a roadmap for the evidence that people might bring up in the courtroom to cast doubt on him, so he was determined to find new evidence that everything was on the level. This, for example, is when he 
quote-unquote, found the baptismal records for Carmelita and her deceased twin brother in the records of the San Salvador church that he had planted years earlier. He also traveled back to his old haunt of the archives in Guadalajara to dig up more proof of the Peralta family and its massive land holdings. And in his later retelling, this was an almost fruitless toil as day after day of searching led to nowhere. But a local historian pointed him toward a bundle of records that might possibly have something. And there, filed incorrectly in a bundled mark 1824, he found a bonanza, a probate record of the first baron's will, the order commissioning the first baron as a captain in the royal dragoons, and a small cherry-colored folder with four sedulas and a family tree of the Peralta family, with detailed information on the second baron's marriage in 1822. So Rivas returned from Mexico with this conveniently discovered pile of documents that just so happened to address many of the concerns the Johnson report had raised. What a lucky coincidence for Rivas, wouldn't you say? During this time, he also traveled to California with a couple of his lawyers, because he had many, to get sworn statements about Carmelita's backstory. He had several people lined up to testify that they had not only known the second baron, but his son-in-law and Carmelita's supposed father, Jose Maso, as well. Because the Court of Private Land Claims had such a wide jurisdiction, it allowed the parties involved in suits and their legal representatives to get sworn statements from witnesses who couldn't always pick up and head to Santa Fe to appear in court. And like modern depositions, the opposing side and their counsel had the right to be apprised of and present at these meetings as well. Probably the most important person that Rivas lined up was an elderly San Francisco merchant named Miguel Nue Sr. Nue had a splendid memory and was able to recall in precise detail meeting the second Baron in Maso and holding little Carmelita in his arms when she was only a few weeks old. He also claimed that he visited Carmelita and her poor grandmother on a couple of occasions after her father and then grandfather had sailed for Spain and died. In this, he was backed up by the testimony of his son and the owner of a boarding house where the second baron and his family had often taken breakfast. Then there was Alfred Sherwood, who had taken Carmelita in as a baby, and he testified how John A. Treadway, whose house she had originally gone to, had intimated before his death that she had some sort of inheritance coming. All very useful evidence in his favor, and Rivas made sure these testimonies were printed widely in the newspapers. The clerk of the court would later testify that Rivas and his agents had driven up with a wagon full of boxes and folders labeled Peralta Grant. And these filled three full tables and included everything we've discussed, including the documents, the portraits, the seals, and even letters to and from the first baron. This poor clerk had to spend days wading through all this, which in a couple of years would be proven to be nothing more than false evidence. Though Rivas had a head start, the government attorneys in this case were definitely no slouches. The main attorney was a man named Matthew Reynolds, who, by coincidence, was also from Missouri. He had graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland, and after three years in the Navy, he turned to the practice of law. 
Reynolds had also gotten himself elected to the Missouri State Legislature, where he was known to be energetic, shrewd, and honest. And in this case, he was assisted by a New York attorney named Savaral Mallet Prevost, who had actually been born at Zacatecas down in Mexico and was fluent in both English, Spanish, and, importantly, Old Spanish and Mexican law. These two basically decided that their strategy was going to be retrace every single footstep Rivas had taken in search of his claim and then verify everything. They also hired an expert graphologist to review every scrap of paper the would-be baron turned into the court, as well as enlisted the help of two Secret Service agents to also run down leads and follow up with witnesses. If the use of Secret Service agents sounds weird to you, well, the reason is twofold. First, the FBI was still more than a decade away from being founded. And secondly, at this point in their history, the Secret Service was still mainly tasked with investigating counterfeiting and some other federal tasks, since there really weren't any federal investigatory agencies around. It wouldn't be until the death of President McKinley in 1901 that Congress began asking the agency to protect the president. Alright, so between the initial filing of the Rivas suit in 1893 and the start of the trial in 1895, these men engaged in a dogged investigation that turned up results everywhere they went. Let's start with Mallet Previs, because he went the furthest in all of this. First, in January 1894, he and the graphology expert traveled to Santa Fe and then on to Tucson to examine every single piece of paper that Rivas had filed between his lawsuits and the claims made in 1887 and 1883. Then Mallet Previs continued down into Mexico to visit the archives personally and search for anything related to the Peralta family himself. He would spend several weeks perusing documents about Mexico City and Guadalajara, and by the time he returned to the U.S. in April 1894, he wrote to Reynolds that he was, quote, entirely convinced of the spurious character of every piece of paper there filed, end quote. But he wasn't done yet. Oh, no. Because now, Mallet Previs petitioned to be able to travel to Spain and search around in Madrid and Seville to see what he could find there. And it took some doing for the government to finally allow this, but Mallet Previs was in Spain in June 1894 when he did his best to cut through the red tape that thickly bound the Spanish bureaucracy. Finally, though, he was able to access the archives in Seville, and more importantly, the archivists. These all remembered Rivas very well, and it was here that Mallet Previs learned of the incident that we covered in episode 138. If you need a refresher, that's where Rivas produced documents out of certain bundles that the curator swore he had searched, which put everyone on alert to watch this Americano whom they suspected was now bringing in documents from the outside. Then one young archivist had plainly seen Rivas try to slip a piece of paper into a certain bundle of documents. Rivas denied this, but then he also wouldn't let people search him or his papers, which got the police involved, and it was only Rivas's powerful friends and his trip to England shortly thereafter that stopped any sort of criminal proceedings. And in another lucky find, Mallet Previs also found the landlady of a place where Rivas had stayed during his time in Seville, because if you'll remember, he had gone alone while his wife was off with her quote-unquote family. 
and this landlady related how Riva spent many an evening and night hunched over ancient-looking documents and gave her strict instructions to steer clear of his collection of jars and bowls containing certain compounds, as well as quills and brushes. This was all great stuff for Reynolds and his legal team, and Mallet Previs rushed home to tell everyone about his discoveries. Because the Mexican government wouldn't allow any documents to be taken from the archives, even if they were now possibly seen as frauds, Mallet Previs took one of the judges from the Court of Private Land Claims with him on a second trip into Mexico to take statements for the government's case. Rivas and his team were quite aware of this because, as I said, they had a right to be there for this, but no one representing him showed up. Then, in another extraordinary move that required quite a bit of diplomacy, Mallet Previs went back to Spain with another judge from the court to get the official statements needed for the case. He would return just in time for the case to start in May 1895. So, obviously Mallet Previs has turned up some pretty damning stuff that cast a lot of doubt on Rivas's entire story. But, though they didn't travel nearly as far, Reynolds and the two Secret Service investigators were able to do just as much damage to the story of the Peralta Grant by following up on other leads closer to home. Reynolds had been present for some of the original testimony taken in California, where Miguel Noé and others had sworn that they had not only met, but were intimate friends of the second baron and his son-in-law, José Maso. He decided that he wanted to redo a lot of these interviews, just to see if he could find any inconsistencies in their stories. At the same time, he sent the Secret Service agents to do their own rounds of interviews, including with Royal A. Johnson down in Tucson. One of them also sat down with James Monahan, the livery owner that had known George Willing in the 1860s, and who we haven't discussed since he gave his warning to Rivas at the beginning of our series in episode 135. Another agent was also sent to the Church of San Salvador, and he met with the priest there. And it's during this part of the investigation that the time bomb that Rivas had planted years ago finally went off. The church's head priest went through the records with the agent, and they discovered the discrepancy between the baptismal record book that Rivas had borrowed and the index register that he had not. But the biggest bombshell of them all was when one of the agents, then working in San Francisco, received incredible news from a shady attorney named William W. Allen. It turns out that in the past, Allen had done work representing none other than Miguel Noé, the key witness who had sworn to his relationship with the Peralta family. Allen stated that Rivas had approached him before the testimonies had been taken, looking for men that were preferably Mexican or Spanish that could be witnesses for his case. Allen instantly thought of Noé, who had perjured himself in the previous case where he had represented the man, and Noé had found the others who had so willingly testified for Rivas. The crooked attorney would say that he became a little nervous that he might be wrapped up in a major case, so that's why he started leaking details. However, at first he would only say that he didn't know what the agreement was actually, or what the man had been told to testify about, and he claimed to have misplaced any documentation about this. After the Secret Service agent leaned on him a little bit, Allen finally confessed that Rivas had told Noé every last detail about the second Baron and Maso that he then gave in his official testimony. 
Allen would even sign a written statement declaring that Revis had written most of Noe's testimony in his own office, and Noe and the others were instructed to memorize the details there. Allen went on to produce an agreement between Revis and his wife to pay $50,000 to one Mrs. Elena Campbell, who happened to be Noe's daughter-in-law, for certain unmentioned services. So, if you followed all of that, basically Revis had paid a bunch of people to perjure themselves and testify that everything Revis had said in Carmelita's backstory was true. And Alan had pocketed quite a hefty fee to bring all of this about. I should point out that rather than his conscience getting to him about the evil of his ways, Alan was more concerned about getting wrapped up in something that would get him to trouble. After spilling all these beans, he was quick to suggest that if the government were to pay him, say, $15,000, he would produce all the witnesses necessary to discredit Revis. Suffice it to say, the agent took Allen's testimony, but did not entirely trust him or his promise to supply honest witnesses for the case. But with this new evidence, Reynolds took a second run at Miguel Noé. However, the old man stubbornly stuck to the story that Rivas had given him. Yes, he had known Miguel Peralta. Yes, he had known Jose Maso, And yes, he knew that Carmelita was the heir to a vast stretch of land. The $50,000 paid by Rivas was explained away as the Baron trying to induce his son and daughter-in-law to invest in the development of the Peralta grant. These were very unconvincing lies, but there was nothing that Reynolds could do. However, his questions did have one effect. Eventually, when this little team of perjurers were rounded up, officials found that Miguel Nue had fled to Mexico. He would never face the charges stemming from the Peralta Grant case. After Miguel Nue, Reynolds began questioning friends and neighbors of Alfred Sherwood about the little girl who had lived in his home. These all uniformly testified that they knew of the girl in the Sherwood home, but all thought of her as the daughter of John A. Treadway and an Amerindian woman possibly named Kate. No one recalled there being an elderly Spanish grandmother in the scene at all, or that Carmelita was the heir to some vast estate somewhere. And after rounding up that information, Reynolds next sat down with Sherwood himself to go over the details. And in this interview, Sherwood broke from the story that Revis and his attorney had gathered, admitting that Carmelita was thought to be the child of Treadway and the Amerindian woman, and that there had been no elderly Spanish woman living in his house during the years in question. At this point, he also denied knowing Miguel Noé, or that he had been told that Carmelita stood to inherit a large estate of any kind. When pressed, Sherwood admitted that Revis and Carmelita had come to him following their trip to Europe, and this was the first time that he had heard of the Peralta Grant and that his one-time ward stood to profit by it. Then in 1890, Sherwood had agreed to sign a short statement, written up by Revis, to agree with the new backstory that Carmelita was now peddling. Now, Sherwood didn't do this out of any sense of malfeasance or desire to hoodwink anybody, but, as he admitted to Reynolds, simply out of a desire to give Carmelita the best life possible as he had known her from the time she was just a little baby. Between what he and the Secret Service agents had uncovered, plus what Mallet Previs had brought back from Mexico and Spain, Reynolds was now sitting pretty on not just an ace in the hole, but a whole royal flush of evidence 
to use in trial. Now, as I said, Revis had a right for him or his attorney to sit in on all these testimonies. But oddly enough, no one showed up. And this wasn't because of indifference, apathy, or something so mundane as being tied up with work. No, he didn't show up because during the interregnum of filing his suit and when court actually started, Revis's fortunes suddenly turned sour. During 1891 and 1892, he was traveling widely, turning over every rock he could to find more evidence to support his claim. And this was an expensive task because Revis was not the sort of man who would just stay anywhere now that he was about to inherit a barony. His legal fees were also astronomical, seeing that he employed at times up to 10 different attorneys, all of them prominent lawyers charging high rates for their valuable, valuable time. Then in the spring of 1893, something else was dropped into his lap. Carmelita gave birth to twins. Rivas was overjoyed at this, and the two boys were christened Miguel and Carlos Jesus, taking names from the first and second barons of Arizona. The really funny bit is that Rivas would actually try to use the birth of the boys as another bit of evidence that his sons were actually descended from this Peralta family. After all, hadn't his wife also been a twin? Truly, sets of twins must run in the family, and here it is manifesting itself yet again. The birth of his sons also had a major impact on Rivas's position. At the time, he and his wife were staying in a large, read expensive, suite in the Fifth Avenue hotel that Rivas had converted into a delivery room for the occasion. Several doctors were hired to attend to the Baroness, while nurses were on duty both day and night. For the sake of appearances, Rivas had to spend lavishly on this birth. After all, these were the scions of the noble Peralta family and heirs to the land empire that their parents were destined to control. Now was not the time to be a cheapskate. However, even as he was paying for all of this, funds were starting to dry up. He was still trying to drum up money in New York for his fake companies and development schemes, but he soon found that people were keeping their pocketbooks closed as they all wanted to wait for the outcome of the pending court case. At this moment too, the famed lawyer Ingersoll had taken on some more pressing cases and so wasn't showing that much interest in helping out Revis at the moment. The whole trip out to California to get the statements of Miguel Noé and the others had been almost prohibitively expensive, especially when you consider the $50,000 he dropped on Noé for his testimony. But Rivas was willing to risk everything. At this point, he's basically putting it all on black, crossing his fingers, and spinning the roulette wheel. In 1893, following the birth of the twins, Rivas also decided it was time to move his growing family back to the mansion he had built for himself years earlier in Arizona. However, the house wasn't really in the best of conditions, and the family temporarily took up residence in the hotel near Phoenix's sanatorium while a crew of Odom workmen were hired to clean the place up. And thus, two more large expenses were added to Rivas's already strained bank accounts. As the expected trial date of May 30th, 1895 drew near, we really see Rivas's support start to fall away. The Court of Private Land Claims had by now dealt with several minor cases, 
with them being routinely dismissed. In the court's rulings, the judges had made it quite clear that claims based on fraudulent evidence would be the subject of prosecution. And it appears that this hard-nosed stance was enough to spook Rivas's friends, investors, and lawyers alike. One by one, his attorneys all abandoned his case. One of them, whom he had known for 16 years and was considered a close friend, even notified the court that he was withdrawing without ever talking to Rivas first. Then there was the issue of money. Rivas desperately wrote letter after letter after letter to every deep-pocketed, glad-handing businessman, lawyer, and politician that he had met in New York, Washington, San Francisco, and Los Angeles, begging for help. However, to a man, they all decided that Rivas was now a bad bet. They had advanced him a lot of money in the past to develop the Peralta Grant, but they did not succumb to the sunk cost fallacy and decided it was better to lose money than to be wrapped up in such a controversial case. With no other choices left, Rivas had to sell his houses in St. Louis, Chihuahua, and even Spain, and gave up on the sumptuous offices he kept at the Dunhill Building in San Francisco. Now he worked out of a modest townhouse as he tried desperately to stop the bleeding. However, he still had to sell his wife's jewels to pay the bills. By the spring of 1895, he was virtually penniless and without any sort of legal counsel. So even if he knew about the interviews Reynolds and his team were conducting, he couldn't very well afford to go himself or hire a lawyer to represent him. But I don't want you to think that Rivas was a beaten man. He was desperate, sure, but his quick wits and natural talents had kept him afloat before, and he seemed pretty sure that he could do it again. So join me next week as we bring the Peralta Grant drama to its thrilling conclusion, as Rivas takes to the courtroom for one last chance of convincing everyone that his grant was real and that all this evidence to the contrary was smoke and mirrors concocted by less intelligent men. I don't think I have to tell you that it's not going to go his way at all. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye.